Okay, we are live. Just waiting for Rockfin to give me the the green light, and then we'll start. Come on, Rockfin, let me go live. All right, go live on Rockfin. Okay, welcome to another live stream. We have a lot to discuss with a lot of great people on this stream. We have Alexander in London, the Oracle of London. We have the one and only Brian Berletic, and we are very happy and very honored to have Mr. Angelo Giuliano with us. Angelo, welcome to a live stream on the Durand. It is great to have you here. Well, it's a great pleasure. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I love your show. Uh, I, why am I into geopolitics? Uh, you know, I've, I've been, you know, I, I live, I have a family, very politicized. So, I, you know, I grew up in, geo, in, in talking politics at home. But this, uh, now, especially now, because I've been living three close to three decades in China, and I've been, I've been so shocked from what I see uh, from Western media and from mm. the reality on the ground. You know, China is a good place. Uh, there's so many, so many good things to talk about China. And most important, what people tend to forget is that China needs to be good for Chinese. You know, we are so mm. different. We, we have different lenses. It's like anything. Russia, if you want to be objective about Russia, mm. you need to look with Russian eyes. And, and this is, you know, leave and let leave. Uh, mm. why, why do we want to create a world with all, you know, with all values, impose our own values and to this confrontation those countries don't want that they they want to cooperate they are more into tangible stuff about mutual prosperity stability tangible stuff they but they don't want the world that the, the collective west is want to impose upon them which is ultimately it's a it, you know it's neo-colonialism it's more subtle it's imposing a currency it's imposing a culture and, and extremely by force. Uh, so so I see I see Chinese very pragmatic. And I think I have I think it's important. I, I I've heard you guys saying, you know, we need adults on the table right now. You know, those guys are acting like kids, very emotional, not rational at all. And I, I think why why are they like this? You know, it's just look at the background of those politicians in the collective West. Uh, you you see in the in the U.S. there are lawyers, bankers. In China, who is running China now are scientists, engineers. They have PhDs. They you know what? They are not going to sell you something sexy. They're not going to sell you dreams. It's about reality, scientific approach. And Chinese love it because if you tell a Chinese, "I'm going to sell you freedom," it's like, oh, "Can I eat freedom?" And, and this is you know this is. The message I want to bring to people is that you know China is a good place. It has delivered. Not saying that China is a good system for us in the West. No, but it has proven forty years of prosperity. You know, so that's that's pretty much the message and why I I am into this right now. Just talking about geopolitics because it's pure madness the directions where where the collective West is going to. Yes, it is pure madness. So let's uh, talk about the madness. Before we get started, let me just say a quick hello to everyone that is watching us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, 
theduran.locals.com. How is everyone doing in the locals chat? And everyone watching us on YouTube, hello to our amazing moderators. Valies is with us. Zarael, Reckless Abandon. I saw Peter in the chat as well. And uh, who else? I think that is everyone that is helping out to moderate. I will also be moderating as well. So Alexander, Brian, Angelo. Mm -hmm. We started off with China. Do you guys want to continue with China? We got so much news to cover in the next hour, hour and a half. Let's just get right into it. Uh, Alexander, Brian, Angelo, the, the floor is yours. Yeah. Well, can I just say, I mean, th thank you for what you said, Angelo, because it brings us to the actual point of the whole conflict today. Because uh, the thing to understand is that it's all about China. <laughs> Everything that's going on ultimately is about China. The war in Ukraine is not about Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is about Russia. The conflict with Russia isn't ultimately about Russia. It is about China. There's this idea that you have to somehow isolate China, break away Russia, fragment Russia, so that you can then deal with this great power, China, which has the temerity to challenge not just the United States as you know the global leader, but indeed the whole West. The whole West, for the first time since the 16th century, feels that a non-European, non-Western power is rising and is rising and is becoming greater than itself. And of course, what's really smooth, not much talked about, the fact that industrial manufacturing capacity in China is now greater than that of the United States and the European Union combined. So this is what it's ultimately about. And this is why we have a war in Ukraine. And we also see all the really ugly things that are going on at the same time. Why TikTok, we now see this whole new terrible act that's now being put together in the United States. It's being sold as being to ban TikTok. Banning TikTok, we're told, is popular in Congress. Why is banning TikTok popular? I mean, what, what is it about TikTok that makes it so dangerous? I mean, I've never been able to understand that. The only people I know who use TikTok are basically teenagers and students. <laughs> but anyway, nonetheless, it's apparently a massive threat because it's Chinese. And of course, at the same time as we're banning TikTok, we're going to pose all kinds of further restrictions on free speech, on the ability to use the internet, um, it's now going to be given kind of legislative cover to do all of that. So you have a kind of extraordinary sense of paranoia. This is how it seems to me it is about China. And I asked a rhetorical question a few weeks ago at a program I, we did on the Duran, which I said, you know, people talk about the Chinese threat. What is this Chinese threat that we are hearing so much about is it suggested that china is going to invade europe well that's a preposterous idea is it suggested that china is intending to attack the united states that is also an absurd idea is it about taiwan but we already accept acknowledge that taiwan is part of china <laughs> taiwan itself says it is part of China. It actually claims to be the government of China. So, and the situation there until a few years ago was completely stable. Nobody was worrying about Taiwan. If you look at who's been destabilizing, 
the situation with Taiwan. It's been us. It's us in the West. So we're feeding the dragon's teeth. We fed the dragon's teeth we, to Ukraine. It's produced a terrible war there, which is getting worse every day. I mean, Brian's been covering that war brilliantly, if I may say. And ultimately, all about the rise of a country, the fact that this is a very big country, a very old country, a country with tremendous statecraft, and the fact that it's become prosperous and economically successful is somehow perceived by us in the West as a threat. And the tragedy of all of this is that, of course, the Chinese are now having to take steps to uh, uh, counter these moves that we are making against them. And by doing that, of course, we say that they're becoming aggressive. Anyway, that's my sort of summary of the state of things. Um, I, I perhaps already spoken too much. Uh, um, throw it back to you two gentlemen. I mean, I, I don't know what you make of that. Brian, um, Angelo. Well, I, I will go through the, the points that you just made uh, when you mentioned China's industrial base. Now we can see with this proxy war in Ukraine uh, just how vital and at the center of, of any conflict an industrial base is. We see the, uh, the Russian Federation outproducing the collective West in this proxy war, uh, which is something you would have thought that the West would have understood before starting it, but apparently not. And uh, Alexander, you did a brilliant job breaking down that Asia Times article about this confab, these uh, top US foreign policy experts had about uh, the situation in Ukraine and how badly it's going and how they're, they're basically coming to the understanding that they cannot win this war of attrition. And the suggestions that they were making were beyond fantasy, sending something like a thousand Abrams tanks or creating a foreign legion when they've already done that and it has completely failed. Uh, but the one that uh, struck me as the most bizarre and fantastical was the idea that they should start putting pressure on China and begin some sort of additional confrontation with China through sanctions. They already admit that they did sanctions on Russia. They did not work. And now they want to do it on China because they think, well, actually, maybe China will have more success. And I, I, these are people who are incapable of learning from their mistakes. Uh, now, the, the Chinese threat it's very important for people to understand that it, it stems entirely from the United States and the special interests driving its foreign policy, simply being unable to accept the, the reality that it will surpass the United States it has absolutely nothing to do with some sort of military threat China poses to the US. If you read through their policy papers, they're very happy about the fact that China's military is configured to defend their territory. This is what gives them in their mind, they think the opportunity to launch some sort of uh, blockade against China far away from Chinese shores, but interdict shipping all else, uh, everywhere else around the globe and strangle them that way because specifically because China has not configured their military to project military power around the globe. Um, you, you talked about how Taiwan was not an issue. And it's interesting because uh, Ma Yingjiao is is on the mainland right now, or, or he was on the mainland doing this historic visit to the rest of China. And he was the previous president of the Republic of China 
on Taiwan. And he was moving everything toward economic integration, which is something I, I, I'll hand it over to Angelo to explain. But at that time, everything was moving toward a very slow, incremental, mutually beneficial reintegration with the rest of China between Taiwan and the mainland. And the US specifically disrupted that with the Sunflower Movement in 2014, and then installing Tsai Ing-wen of the Democratic Progressive Party uh, into power and sponsoring her separatism. So maybe, uh, Angela, you could talk a little bit more about that, because I, I think that is crucial for people to understand it. And I don't think many people do understand that. Yes, I think it's very important to understand the, the profile of Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, there are cables from uh, WikiLeaks that you can find in uh, dating uh, back in 2005, where she had uh, secret meetings with the AIT. AIT is uh, American Institute of Taiwan, which is uh, de facto the US embassy in Taiwan. So she was already back then reporting to them, to the US. Uh, and then basically they constructed uh, this image, you know, I mean, basically the same as they did with Macron, you know, they, they started, you know, uh, uh, constructing this image, oh, she's the new face of democracy. And of course she was on Time Magazine and so on. And then, uh, so slowly she was, she was, you know, elected then in 2016. But why did she was elected? Because of the flower revolution in 2014 which was funded by the US. And basically back then there was a critical time where was, Taiwan has never been so close to reunification because it was this free trade agreement between Taiwan and mainland China. And, and uh, so DPP, the, uh, the party, pro-independence party was elected, they elected the president in 2016 because of that. And then they did it again in 2020. Why Tsai Ing-wen was elected in 2020 was because of the riots in Hong Kong, which were funded by the US. And actually there's a strong, very strong support by the DPP of Taiwan. They even sent people to join the protest in Hong Kong. So she went from a support of 35% to 60% because of the riots that were instigated in Hong Kong. Because it's important to understand that uh, the long plan of China is to create a one country, two system. And this is why they did this in Hong Kong to show Taiwan as a case study to show Taiwan when you see Hong Kong, it's working well, one country, two system. But the problem is that uh, Hong Kong had not enacted a national security law. So in 2019, during the riots in Hong Kong, you had actually basically, I mean, CIA agents running freely because there's no national security law. I mean, it was like, you know, it was a big party there. You know, we could do whatever we want because the article 23 of the basic law of Hong Kong was not enacted. They had delayed this process, you know, all along. So basically they won twice, the DPP won twice in 2016 and 2020 because of, you know, the, the interference of the US. Now the big question is next election in January 2024. And that's a big question because the Kuomintang, the Nationalist, uh, Nationalist Party, they, you know, they're gaining support. You know, they won the, the local elections, the last local election. Uh, but we need to be very careful because usually Kuomintang does much better in the local election than the presidential election. So there's this window of opportunity for the US because after that, if, if the Kuomintang wins 
the uh, the presidential election this this project of uh, dividing china and taiwan might fall apart alexander your your mic yeah. is yeah. i just just, just okay. briefly explain that the, the the guomindang is actually the, the original chinese nationalist party created as an outcome of the revolution that took place in china in 1911 which overthrew the monarchy it was set up by sun yat-sen a revered figure in china he was china's leader during the 1920s and in a, a, a lot of the people who eventually came to form the Chinese Communist Party um, originated from the left wing of the Guomindang movement. Now, there was a Guomindang, and the Communist Party eventually came to blows in China during the Chinese Civil War. But the Guomindang actually still exists in China to the mainland China to this day. There are still Guomindang people in mainland China. There are still Guomindang people in Taiwan. They all consider themselves Chinese and part of China. And of course, the reason why Taiwan became separated from China in the first place was because in 1949, when the Chinese Communist Party won the civil war on the Chinese mainland, the then Guomindang government, which it was fighting, relocated with US aid to Taiwan and established itself there, continuing to claim to be the, the government of China and retaining, by the way, China's vote in the United Nations, including the UN Security Council, right up until 1971. It's a somewhat tangled history but that that is the basic background so for nearly all of taiwan's existence as an entity separate from the mainland since 1949 it has insisted it has been deeply committed to becoming part of china again and of course officially it still claims to be the government of china um, and and i would like to add that uh the the, the consequences of Taiwan, the Republic of China uh, morphing into this independent country, Taiwan, the consequences of that will be exactly the same as we have seen, say, uh, from 2014 onward in Ukraine. Before even considering the armed conflict, the way the, the client regime in Kiev irrationally cut all, all economic ties or most economic ties with Russia because they were deeply integrated industrially, economically. They cut that and their, their economy began cratering. That was before the armed conflict took its toll. And of course, uh, the prospects for Ukraine's economy non-existent. This is the exact same thing that will happen to Taiwan if uh, the, you know, the, the Democratic Progressive Party goes down this path. And uh, Al Alexander, you mentioned that the United States basically preserved uh, the uh, the Republic of China on the island of Taiwan. And I just want to point out to people that the, the concept of Taiwan being somehow autonomous or independent, uh, it is an illusion. And it's an illusion created by constant decades of U.S. military and political support. It would not exist without that support. And if the U.S. cut that support, 
it would it would cease to exist pro probably almost overnight, like the, the client regime installed into power in Afghanistan uh, when the U.S. left and all, all of its ties were cut, it ceased to exist. And I, I think the same thing will happen to Taiwan and people should look at the economics of the trade of the, the island of Taiwan with the rest of China and how crucial that is and how that is something that cannot be replaced with uh, uh, you know, pivoting towards the U.S. and the EU. Look at the U.S. and the EU economically and now financially and look at what has happened to the U.S. and Europe in regards to their proxy war with Russia and just uh, imagine how that would play out in terms uh, of Taiwan and the proximity of Taiwan to the rest of China versus its proximity to either Europe or the United States. I mean, it's a, it's a no-brainer. And the only reason why people think that this is a viable debate to even have is because the Western media, as they always do, they, they are pumping uh, information space around the world with, with essentially this illusion. I wanted to say, I think this is an extremely important point because um, an independent Taiwan were it ever to be established, given the strength of Taiwan's connections with China. Remember, I mean, you know, it's been Chinese for most of its history. It's considered itself part of China for most of its history. Well, all of its history since 1949. But, you know, but going back beyond that, you go far into the Chinese past when Taiwan was part of the Chinese, uh, Chinese nation. An independent Taiwan would have to be opposed to that Chinese connection, because if it acknowledged it, that would call into question its independence, the, the, the whole purpose of its independence. So the campaign that would have to happen within Taiwan to sort of change people's attitudes, to make them feel that they were no longer Chinese, the, the 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 intensity of the campaign would have to be, in my opinion, multiples greater than anything that you've seen in Ukraine, given that in Ukraine there is, there was a kind of independent Ukrainian identity, which everyone acknowledges. To, to, to try and create a sort of distinct culture in Taiwan would be massively more difficult and it would be it would require i would think enormous pressure on the population of taiwan to achieve it and it would certainly require a major severance in economic ties because you couldn't allow mutual influence between china and taiwan to continue and of course that is a guarantee of instability that would be a guarantee of instability within taiwan itself and it would make the entire relationship with china itself the mainland all but impossible. So I, I don't personally think we're ever going to get there because I don't think the Chinese will ever allow it to happen. But if it were to succeed, it would simply create a much bigger crisis, even than the one we have now further down the road. Uh, Angelo, I mean... Uh, can, uh, because... can I add something? I'd love... Yeah. Oh, I'd like to add something related to the identity. Uh, uh, people have changed their perception in Taiwan, and, and the, the, there's there's a plenty of reason. One of the reason is uh, information space. It's been hijacked by you know. There's lots of funding from the U.S. There's a national endowment for democracy present in Taiwan. 
so the information space has been, has been hijacked. There's another point which is very important is that uh, Cheng Shui-bian, who's the predecessor of uh, Tsai Ing-wen from the DPP, he was president, uh, uh, you know, two, uh, almost two decades ago. And they, they started, uh, there was a new law and they started changing history books. What does it mean? You change history books. The whole narratives of kids that come out of school in Taiwan right now, when they read history books, they, they, they learn that uh, Taiwanese history started only in 1949. And so now you have this generation, you see the demographic of the DPP, they're all young kids and they believe in this new narrative of not having a shared history with China. You, you see, the, this is a very similar playbook to Ukrainians. Ukrainians, the first thing you do, change history books. Now Ukrainians, they have, you know, they have a different perception. I mean, they so, you know, if you read history books in Ukraine, I mean, they, it's so extreme, you know, they, they might even say that uh, Jesus was from Ukraine. You know, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. But, you know, kids believe that, you know, you change history books, that's how you construct a new national identity. So, uh, so now if you look at the polls, there's a poll, very important poll that says uh, a lot of them want, there's, a, there's a, a very important proportion that wants independence, but there's this but, keep the status quo because they're rational. They know that if you declare independence, which by the way is almost impossible, you know, you need a referendum, you know, you need, it's extremely difficult to get to the referendum and then uh, have a, a, a complete approval. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, so basically, uh, uh, but they want, you know, there's a uh, 80% of people that want the status quo, you know, that, that is important. Uh, so now, now I think it's about uh, looking at what are the red lines, you know, there's a few red lines, you know, declare independence, I would say, have uh, US army troops in, in Taiwan, um, and maybe have nuclear weapons on in Taiwan. There's, there's a few red lines, but but I think again, you know, time is on the side of China. Every single year that passes by means the probability of uh, of uh, uh, harming China and the conflict is lower and lower. And I think China wants to. Uh, I, I think there's maybe an opportunity with for China is just waiting that the. The, the collective West collapses. We, we see what is happening in Europe right now. I think there's, a, there's an advanced indicator. Just think about if France falls. If France falls, more will follow. And then there's this whole project of EU collapses and then the collect, collective West is gone. Because people are starting to understand that, that you know, this EU project was just a, a, a way to control, to control uh, Europeans uh, and 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 there was a there was a U.S. agenda all along. Actually, you know, there was a there was a CIA project on the first place. You know, uh, uh, I mean, all the informations are out there. Jean Monnet, you know, uh, Alstein, they were all paid on the payroll by the CIA. So so I I think things are happening, and and, and uh, maybe maybe the collective West might collapse first, and 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 this will you know this confrontation might not happen in, in the South China Sea. Yeah, uh, you've made a lot of points, and I think we'll open it up for discussion. But there's one point I really must make, which is don't place too much faith on opinion polls. I can remember in 2008 when NATO offered Ukraine membership of NATO. At that time, 80% of Ukrainians opposed it. 
They didn't want to be part of NATO. And yet, <laughs> what has happened is that that invitation was nonetheless made. And it's been an unstoppable, or almost unstoppable train ever since, up to the point where we've ended up in a war. So 80% of Taiwanese people may say they want the status quo to remain, but that doesn't mean it will remain. The decision isn't necessarily going to be in their hands. And and I just want to point out also that uh, people have to be very care careful when looking at opinion polls. Uh, the public can and is manipulated. And if you look at the information space in Taiwan, it is heavily skewed in favor of U.S. interests there. And uh, uh, both Alexander and Angelo, you were making the points about indoctrinating people, rewriting history. This is what we, we saw them do in Ukraine for years and years. I, I see National Endowment for Democracy funded organizations here in Thailand trying to do it. They try to erase or, or diminish people's uh, actual culture and replace it with something artificial and always something that is divisive because they want to divide and rule. That is how empire has always uh, worked. And so uh, opinion polls, you have to look at what these people want, and then you have to think about if it is actually objectively in their best interests. And if uh, if people on Taiwan want to be independent, but it's going to completely destroy their economy, or if they support military ties with the U.S. and the U.S. openly and obviously is going to use Taiwan as a proxy, uh, and their policy papers talk about well, we think that Taiwan can maintain its uh, political autonomy, but all of its infrastructure and industry will be scoured off of the island. I mean, that that obviously is not in the best interests of the people of Taiwan. I think that it's important for people to understand that with enough money and if you uh, exercise enough control over a specific information space, you can convince people of almost anything. I just like I'd like to get on to what. Uh, Angela was saying about France because France is very interesting. But should we just deal firstly because this is the, the topic where you are the absolute, uh, um, I mean, the best commentator I think you've been in by far, which is the military industrial side of things. Because there's been a very, very interesting article by Husi Sin uh, in Global Times, former editor. And he's made a point, you know, if the West cannot compete with Russia, in military industrial production, what chance do they have? What real prospect do they have in any kind of competition with us? In other words, with China as well. And that, it seems to me, is the key, the key to this whole confrontation. It, it, it's where Ukraine has gone horribly wrong. And, you know, General Milley has been saying some very bizarre things over the last 24 hours. He's been making some very extraordinary claims about Bakhmut, which we might come to. But he did make one point, which is that he did talk about, the, again, that perennial topic. I never ever imagined I'd ever be talking about it. You'd ask me a year ago if I'd be talking about shells. I would have said I'm never going to be talking about shells. But anyway, we're now talking about shells all the time. And he admitted, he said that, you know, that if we ever find ourselves in a great power war with the Chinese and the Russians. And what an idea, talking about a great power war with the Chinese and the Russians. But it's, if we do, we're going to require multitudes, magnitudes, more shells than we have and we're able to produce. And, of course, the Russians are cranking out shells 
but that doesn't come close to what the Chinese would be capable of doing. So, I mean, that must be putting pressure on people in Washington, or one would have thought. I mean, they must be saying to themselves, well, our window isn't actually that big because for the moment, the Chinese aren't producing shells in those kind of quantities, so they quickly could. So what, what do you think? Do, do, do people in Washington, are they really thinking about this? Is it entering to their calculations? What are they saying to themselves? I mean, uh, uh, this is a question to Brian, essentially. Uh, you, you would have thought that they would have analyzed this before starting this proxy war with with Russia and Ukraine. I, I, I would have almost have been certain that they would have understood this and they would they would have prepared for it. Russia was clearly preparing for this since at least 2014. And I've seen people talk about how since the 2008 uh, Georgia attack on, on Russian forces, that conflict, uh, Russia was looking at their military and realized uh, what the problem was and what they needed to do to prepare for it. And then uh, from 2014 onward, they were certain that there would be a large scale, intense and protracted armed conflict. And they began preparing their military industry for that. The United States, because of their small wars, they've been fighting for decades. And I think just because of uh, corruption and the fact that a, a lot of these people, they do think in, in long term ways, but in other ways, they're very short sighted and they were not prepared for this. And if people look at the 2019 Rand Corporation document extending Russia, they talked about how uh, there was a big risk of everything escalating out of control. It was it was a challenge, they said, and it's a challenge they clearly weren't up to, to meeting. And so here we are, and they cannot even outproduce Russia. And they're now thinking about let's let's put sanctions on China and let's start an arms conflict with China. What, what are the chances of them succeeding? And when you really think about it, back, back at the home front, uh, who thinks uh, China is not going to be able to mobilize more effectively than the United States? I, I, would, I would like to know that, the answer to that question. Angelo, do you want to, as uh, somebody who knows China well, I mean, I've been there, I'm going to say, yeah. I've only been to Shanghai, uh, but my overwhelming impression is if you wanted to mobilize, first of all, uh, um, an intensely patriotic people, that was my impression of the Chinese, uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way, by the way, I'm somebody who's generally in favour of people being patriotic, but they're very intensely patriotic people, if they feel that China is being pressed on, I think that there would be little difficulty mobilizing. And you have to go to China, to Shanghai, to Nanjing, to the areas around to understand both the, the sheer scale and the organizational capacity, which is tremendous. But, uh, you know, I, that was a superficial impression. What do you, what do you think about this angle? angle? Well, it's interesting, Alexander, that you mentioned, you know, people, people, they get sensitive when they, they talk about patriotism. You know, it, it seems like it has become almost like criminal for one person to love his own country. You know, it's a, a and what, you know, when, whenever you elect a, a president, isn't he supposed to have first as a priority his own citizens? Because that's why he's, he's elected for. 
you know, so so being patriotic, that's I, I personally think it's a, it's a good thing. And Chinese, yes, they are patriotic. They're very well aware of their history, and they want to erase those hundred years of of humiliation. But slowly, they're very pragmatic. It's very interesting how people also in China, you know, leaders in China, they think in terms of the next generation, while in the West they are focusing on the next election cycle. They're actually working not on delivering for what they were supposed to, you know, to be elected for, but they're thinking once they're elected, how am I going to raise the next, the funds for the next election? You know, and, and, and for us, living in the collective West, it's a vicious circle of elect and regret. Every time you hope, you know, there was Obama, he, he sold us some dreams. He told us what we wanted to hear. After, you know what? There's no accountability at all, you know? So it's interesting how, how the perception of time for Chinese. You know, I, I'm going to give you an example. The, uh, Joe and Lai, he met with a, a French politician in 1972. And this French politician asked him, what do you think about the French Revolution? You know what he answered? He said, it's too early to tell. That, that tells you how Chinese think. They, they think so much long term. You see this project of the BRICS. Uh, and, I mean the BRICS, you know, and, and uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, you know, and, and the purpose here is to bypass the Malacca Strait. You know, this recycle U.S. dollar trade surplus. There's, there's many. You know, it's a, it's you, you with one stone, you, you hit many birds. You know, it's, it's, it's genius, and it's unique. You know, in world history, there's, there's never happened a, a, a project of such a scale. But you see, Chinese when they talk about this project, they don't. They say this is not ambition for China. This is ambition for the world, and it's about it's about expanding trade, you know, and and bringing stability to to the world. You see those project BRICS SCO. This is it's it's about security, you know, how we can avoid conflict, and you know, there's the Chinese. They have lots of idioms, and they're very interesting. You see how Chinese they see, you know, like every conflict, they say, look for what unites us and set aside the differences. And that's the main approach. Whenever there's a conflict, there's a, you know, they, and, and, and when you look at the 12 points, there's so much wisdom, just go point by point. They're looking for the essential. And you know what? We have differences. Every single person, even friends have differences, but you put them aside and we're gonna work on that. And that's what they did with Taiwan all along. They say, you know what, we have this problem, why don't we start uh, working on, on trade? Because they know trade, business is power. You know, once you build up this connection, you build up roads and we trade with each other, you are going to be most prosperous, meet you, it's a win-win, and we, we, we build out from that foundation. And, and I'd just like to add, add uh, again, Alexander, your coverage of the, the Asia Times article about that meeting. And they're, they're thinking that well, if we, we start sanctioning China and they begin suffering, well, they're not going to like the idea of suffering uh, on behalf of Russia. But in reality, I don't think there's any confusion at all in China at any level of society that it's, uh, it, it's a matter of self-preservation. It really, you know, uh, Russia's fate is tied directly to China's fate, and they fully understand that they're not going to be looking at it in those terms. 
And we don't know who these uh, high-level U.S. foreign policy experts were, but the fact that they are considered high-level and they they think in these these terms so departed from reality, it's very concerning. But it also helps explain a lot about what's going on. In the Asia the Asia Times article said that some of them go back to you know are, are people of cabinet who've held cabinet rank in the United States. So, you know, very senior people indeed. And, uh, you know, it, the other thing about that was that it was all about great power positions. It wasn't, I mean, it was supposed to be principally about the conflict in Ukraine. But as the person who wrote that article, I'm going to call him Spangler, that's what he calls himself, uh, uh, was commenting. They weren't really talking very much about Ukraine, actually. They weren't really worrying about Ukraine. And can I just go back to the point that Alex was making at the start of the programme, that this is an existential conflict, but it's now becoming existential for the West because this conflict in Ukraine started. The assumption was it would be over very quickly. Russia would collapse like a house of cards. The sanctions would be too strong. No conceivable way the Russians could keep up with the West in industrial, military, industrial uh, uh, abilities. Their technology was far inferior to the Western powers. Of course, it's turned out otherwise. So already a major problem for the West in Ukraine. In fact, going back to Alex's original points, far from the Russians being bogged down in Ukraine, it's the West that's now bogged down in Ukraine. We're struggling to keep up with what the Russians are doing. We can't find a simple solution to this problem. But that's our that was our plan. That was our original plan. You know, isolate China, perhaps ultimately blockade it, block the Strait of Malacca. I was reading these already commentaries, I remember, in parts of the sort of neocon-oriented U.S. media back in Obama's time about eventually imposing a naval blockade on China. But they've stumbled at the first part of their plan. China and Russia are drawing closer. Russia's getting militarily stronger. Its economy is being reoriented towards China. It's going to provide China with all of these raw materials. But... They can't let go. They have to go on. They have to press on. They have to push Ukraine into more offensives because this is the entirety of their plan now. And, and, and I'd just like to say that uh, the whole premise that the West is operating from is, is unrealistic. The idea that the US and Europe is going to maintain hegemony over the entire planet that China is not going to surpass the United States, that, that is their starting point and that is incredibly flawed and everything that they try to build on top of that is, is going to be likewise unrealistic and unachievable. The idea that a country has uh, four or five times more people, three times the industrial base, millions of more engineers uh, graduating every single year than the US, uh, that the idea that somehow the U.S. is going to prevent China from surpassing uh, the U.S. It just makes no sense. And so everything after that makes no sense, including their their proxy war against Russia, which, as you pointed out, Alexander, is part of this encirclement and containment of China, isolating it and containing it. And meanwhile, we have enormous stresses 
within our societies, within our Western societies, because if this is existential, if this is becoming an existential conflict, it's because we've made it so. <laughs> we didn't have to go down this road of confrontation, but we are we are apparently now in a, in this stage of conf confrontation. It is becoming existential. And look what it's doing to us. We have this terrible law in the United States, purportedly about TikTok. It's not really about TikTok, but it's all about China, apparently. But it's going to make enormous restrictions on ourselves. And of course, we have a political crisis in France and perhaps one in Germany before long, who knows, and festering issues in Italy. But by the way, um, Angelo, I was following the situation in France very closely at the time of the last, not the last, the previous presidential election, the one where Macron was elected. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it was all about stopping Pierre Filon becoming president because he might lift the sanctions or change the policy so we found this man macron we sold him as an outsider when of course he was the most complete insider in the system that you could probably possibly discover but he was presented to the french people as this you know total you know outside person who was going to shake everything up of course he did shake everything up but not quite in the way people expect it, because we now have a crisis in France on our hands. Well, well look at the background of, of Macron. You know, he was a young leader. You know, World Economic Forum, they had already pre-selected him. You had the nine, you know, the, the media in France is controlled by nine families. Overnight, he had exposure in all those media. It was the first cover. That's all you would see. And, you, you know, there's, there are studies, you know, it's, it's very simple. You know, you, you are going to get a certain amount of vote. It's there's a correlation between how much exposure you get. And 90% of the exposure, there was all Macron. So I think it's very interesting. You know, the, 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 the example of France is very important to study because what the Fr France did, especially the Yellow Vest, you know, they were very advanced. It was an extremely mature project. You know, they wanted to introduce some uh, more like direct democracy, you know, referendum. You know, it turned into, it started from like gas prices and they turned into a project to have referendum rights. Because by having having referendum rights, you bypass the, the people that, 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 that you elected, you know, and, and you, you have, you know, you have something like in between, in between uh, the, the, what they had before and, and Switzerland. You know, Switzerland, you know, this is why you, you know, once you have the, this direct democracy, you, you, you empower people. You give, you give power, uh, power back to, to the people because, because ultimately it's all about the, the rules of the game. Whoever writes the rules of the game controls the game. But if you look at France, those rules of the game were written by the elites. So we are giving to the butcher the the rule of the of, you know the, of the game that that is supposed that game is supposed to protect us from the butcher. And that's what is happening. So ultimately, it's very important. You know, that's what they, wa they wanted to do was to rewrite the rule of the game and write a new constitution. Uh, so so I, I think that's a good example. And, and I think it's, it's very important also to see, you know, to not only when we look at France, to look at the whole EU project. Because ultimately, 
if you want democracy, I mean, again, democracy, you guys are Greeks, you know, correct me, it's a democratos, it's power to the people. The foundation of democracy is sovereignty. You can be left wing, right wing, you can have whatever policy you want, but if you don't have sovereignty, you don't have, you cannot have democracy. And this is why we, what we, we, we actually mention a lot, my, myself, uh, Brian and myself. So it goes back to that. It's do you empower people or not? But you see, friends, it doesn't matter who you elect. Decisions are made in Brussels. You know, the, the pension reforms that we are actually seeing right now in France, that's not Macron's initiative. That's a Brussels initiative. And they have to follow that. No matter who they elect, they have to follow that. So they, this not the thing. It doesn't matter who you elect. You know, I, I wouldn't vote in any EU country. Why? You know, as long as you are into the EU, it, your vote doesn't matter because everything is decided in Brussels. And what they did in Brussels, they replicated the system uh, that they have in the US. You know, it's a lobbying system. And, they, you know, they have legalized corruption. And the new name is lobbying and revolving door. You have those politicians that go back and forth, public sector, private sector, and they enrich themselves. You know, it's enriching uh, an elite. So, so the, the French, you know what they say? They say, we have exchanged one dictator, which was the king, against thousand dictators. That's what they did. But it's the dictatorship. It doesn't change, you know. It goes back to always the same thing. Sovereignty. The, you know, when, when, uh, what, what we do, I mean, with, with Brian, you know, every time it's about when we analyze a country, it doesn't matter who, who actually is, you know, is elected. It's about looking at does this country have sovereignty and is there any foreign meddling? Ultimately, whoever is elect, you know, that's their choice. But, you know, if, we want, if you want to, be, to respect those people, just leave them the, the, the right of self-determination. And, and we talk a lot about the National Endowment for Democracy meddling in places like Southeast Asia or Eastern Europe. But, but Europe is also captured as a region. The European Union is captured and the, you know, the supposed leadership there, they're making decisions uh, that reflect Washington and Wall Street's best interests. Also, maybe London's best interests, not the people of Europe's best interests. And that, that's also another metric. Uh, are these decisions actually because, again, you could convince people in Europe that, yes, we should we should throw everything into the, the proxy war in Ukraine against Russia. You can convince them of that, but is that actually in their best interest? And we can see that it isn't. Uh, it's interesting you were talking about democracy in France. Uh, shortly after the president, or rather his government, imposes a pension reform by decree, which is opposed by 70 plus percent of the population which the parliament refuses to vote for. And of course, we see the president after he does that hiding behind the riot police, <laughs> even as the whole country rises up against him. Because, But very, very difficult to change this, I would have thought. I mean, in spite of the fact, as I said, that Macron is massively unpopular, how do you get him out? If, I, I don't think it's at all straightforward because... You know, overthrowing the king in, was, was, was it 1789 or 1794, depends what state you want to pick, well, you could do it because, you know, he was the person who was the 
central figure in the system. But of course, Macron is not the central figure in the system. As you rightly said, he was parachuted in, he was placed there. He's accountable to these other people, not to the people who have voted for him, because he clearly doesn't think much of. But, you know, how do you, as it's what you said, I mean, you have not one king now, you've got thousands of them, and they're dispersed in many places, and you can't go after them all. And of course, unless you do go after them all, which is as it is impossible, then, I mean, they, they still control the levers and, you know, they'll close the banks, they'll do all kinds of things. France would come under huge pressure if Macron fell and the pension reform were um, dispersed and either Mélenchon or Le Pen were to become president. It would not be a straightforward thing to change at all. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Le Pen. I think Le Pen, there's a lot of you know speculation, but Le Pen was a construct image. It was a very useful uh, opposition. So basically, you prop up, and right uh, before the elections, you you build this image. Oh, you know, like she's the new Hitler. You know, I mean, she's fascist and so on. Just uh, uh, it was a good way just to legitimate, you know, like Macron. Uh, so, you, you know, you have a uh, useful opposition and Le Pen is, is just a useful opposition. She's part of the system. You know, same as uh, Meloni, you know, they, Meloni, she told us what we wanted to hear before being elected. Once she got elected, you know, she was the first to criticize Ukraine, Ukraine war, you know, we should get into this. Once she's elected, that's 180 degrees, you know. I, you see, I didn't make the, the mistake of 360 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> oh no sound no sound yeah no we hear you we yeah. hear you Angelo. we yeah. hear you yeah. okay hear i mean I, i'm sorry obviously. Um, perhaps let, let's let's focus on the big story in europe because of course i i am in london and you know very much in some ways not both in europe and outside it but it does remain ukraine And I think we do need to look at where we're going because, of course, the EU now has invested an enormous amount of its political capital in this Ukraine project. I mean, it cannot be overstated how much of their political capital is invested in it. I mean, if Ukraine falls, if Ukraine loses, if Russia conclusively wins, or worse still, if there's a Chinese mediation which brings about an outcome which the EU doesn't want. That's even, in some ways, even more disastrous. Um, but if that happens, I can't imagine many of these leaders who've you know, taken this into this adventure coming out, however strong their position is. Where do you think we are now with this conflict, Brian? Because I still feel that even though it's not the great conflict, it's still if you like, the pivotal point in it. I mean, you've been following the war. You've got a military background, which I don't. <laughs> Where are we? I mean, are we going to see this offensive? I mean, I, I, I take it, assume, I assume we are going to see a Ukrainian offensive. What happens? Um, what happens then when we see this offensive? What, what do we do? I mean, if it succeeds and if it fails, what happens when Ukraine burns up through all its remaining tanks? and infantry fighting vehicles and runs out of artillery shells. Where is this all going? I mean, exactly. They're, whether they are successful or not, they're going to burn through all, all of their equipment and whatever 
remains of their trained manpower. Now, the, the title of this video is Existential Conflict, and we were talking about how, how can we change things. I think what it's going to come down to is this entire You know, if you want to change things in France, you have to change what the EU is and its subordination to Washington. And all of this collapsing and some other system displacing it, replacing it, displacing it, I think ultimately that's where the change is going to come. And the, it is true that this proxy war with Russia and Ukraine is the at the epicenter. And it, it's, it's going to affect everything, including U.S. plans, military plans versus China and everything that they're doing in the Pacific and uh, along China's periphery. Uh, we can see them preparing for this offensive. We can see, uh, we can see how all of the things that uh, we have all been discussing for a year now, how now even they are starting to realize it and come to grips. They, that, that whole Asia Times piece is perfect. And Angelo shared a CSIS uh, article from, I think it was January, but they were admitting that they're out of everything. They're out of everything and it'll take years to replace it. And the, the solutions that they have for all of this is substituting, say, 155 millimeter artillery pieces and ammunition with 105 millimeter systems, which is just simply inadequate. They admit that even at, in 2025, when the U.S. fully expands its artillery shell production, it's still going to be about a third of what Ukraine requires. Uh, Alexander, I saw you cover uh, about the, the French doubling. Wow, they're going to double the amount of artillery shells that they send to Ukraine from 1,000 to 2,000, which covers one morning of one day in an entire month. I mean, this is where they are right now. They, they're going to assemble this huge force for this, this uh, offensive. We don't know if it's going to be one single offensive uh, in the direction toward, toward Crimea or into the Donbass, or they're going to split it up like they did in the fall between Kharkov and Kherson. But I think it's important to study how those offensives in the fall went in reality versus all, all of the myths connected to it. And I think we can see clearly where the offensive is going to go, uh, where, wherever and whenever it takes place. Uh, in Kherson especially, I think the fighting is going to be very similar there, where Ukraine lacks the long-range firepower to match Russia. They cannot afford to do this incremental and very careful uh, inching across the battlefield. They cannot do that. So what they do is they take all of all of their armored vehicles from tanks to, to you know, Humvees, and they rush toward Russian positions in a dispersed manner, hoping that uh, Russian firepower cannot be concentrated quickly enough to destroy all of these units before they come into range and inflict casualties on Russian positions. And they hope that they can inflict enough damage to compel Russian commanders to withdraw. That, that is what they were doing in Kherson. Uh, Alexander, I know you remember that Washington Post article where they were talking about how lopsided the fighting was in Russia's favor. And they talk about uh, Ukraine. Oh, well, uh, Brian, your, your take aged like milk. Uh, they got Kherson City. But in reality, that was a decision that Russia made and that they wanted to. And they continued investing into the, the defense of Kherson City. I think they could have held it. It wouldn't have made any sense. But I think that they could have done it. Uh, so that that is the basis they are they are working from. Uh, they think that that was some sort of success that they can replicate in up to and including taking Crimea. I heard uh, retired Army General Ben Hodges talking about how Ukraine is going to be in Crimea. I mean, 
uh, you know, back in Crimea by the fall. It's just uh, fantastical thinking. Now, the offensive itself, I don't think anyone should underestimate what will happen. Uh, Russia does give up territory if they feel they will suffer heavy casualties or they'll be cut off from the main grouping or they'll be encircled and captured. So they could take territory. They could even take substantial territory. Uh, but but as, as you were suggesting, once they're done with this offensive, they are going to have nothing left and NATO has nothing left to give them. There is no another army's worth of equipment that they can give Ukraine. And that Asia Times article made a point that I'm starting to hear many in the West make. All of these troops that NATO trained in Ukraine from 2014 uh, up to the start of the special military operation, they are gone. And now they're sending men into battle with two or three weeks of training, which is entirely inadequate. And just in case people don't know, a, a U.S. Marine, entry-level U.S. Marine does three months of basic training. And I believe it's another two months of infantry training if they're going into infantry. That's, that's almost half a year versus a week. Uh, no, I have one month of training that these Ukrainian soldiers are getting if they're lucky and then being sent to the front. I should say we've been here before now, uh, you know, years and years ago. I mean, I don't remember this directly, but I studied uh, U.S. history and I did a lot about the Vietnam War. And I remember reading lots and lots of articles that were published at the time in the Vietnam War, during the Vietnam War in the United States about the progress that was being made. And it was all about territory, the fact that we were getting territory, uh, uh, we were engaging in successful offensives. If you followed, if you tracked the coverage of the war in the American media, not just up, not ju uh, just up to the Tet Offensive, beyond the Tet Offensive, contrary to what many people think, you would think that it was an extraordinary progress. <laughs> they were winning all the time. They were gaining territory. They were capturing towns and capturing villages and clearing areas of uh, the Vietnamese. The fact was, in reality, the will to fight, the ability to keep going was just draining away. It was actually a war of attrition. And I think even in 1960s, it was clear that the US wasn't really configured to fight wars of attrition and of course it's far less configured to fight them today and that's the kind of war the russians are fighting they're fighting a war of attrition uh, alexander i want to mention one thing uh, how did uh, the u.s manage uh, after uh, the debacle of uh, vietnam well what you do you you do some uh, cool hollywood movies with rambo and ultimately, you know, you have average Joe in the U.S. next generation. They'll think they won that war. You know, the same as World War II. How did you get to the point where uh, 70 years later, uh, the collective West is convinced that the, the U.S. saved us from the Nazi? You know, that's that's how you do. You are going to brainwash the whole population to say, well, we knew we didn't lose that war. You know, you they they are. It's so outrageous the lies they're telling us. You you guys saw what even even the, at the UN the spokesperson at the UN he, he even say well you what what do you, we you we don't have there's no US personnel in, in Syria, you know and, and sadly the thing is that there's a, such a low level of awareness. Uh, uh, people ultimately they learn through you know mainstream media lies and and Hollywood. And that's that's how they will manage. And I, and I think ultimately Ukraine 
well, you know, it's not going to be a debacle. We, we are going to manage just to turn this, you know, advantage, you know. I mean, you know, because that's what they want. It's, it's all about perception. I just want to add one thing. You know what you mentioned, uh, Brian, just before. You know, the problem is that uh, the the military uh, of of the collective West it it has become a, a, a profit driven, uh, not purpose driven. And I think the problem is also all economies. If you look at how we run our economies, which are purely inflated. You know, we've learned through the, this war that actually, you know, we shouldn't think. Uh, the old version of GDP. You know, GDP is only one metric. There's much more to an economy. You know, you can you have to adjust it to purchasing power parity, and then you need to look at tangible stuff. You know, if if it's services and so on, what does serv service do if you are at war? You know, plus uh, you, I, I think I don't know if you know uh, Emmanuel Todd. He did some studies uh, about uh, you know like this new version of GDP. Uh, US GDP, 18% is healthcare. China, 6% is healthcare. But China is delivering. Meaning that, you know, the metrics are, are getting better every year. You know, longevity, you know, people live longer in China than in the US, longevity down in the US. But how can you explain that you have 80% of GDP in the US that goes for healthcare and only 6% in China? The answer is in GDP because overpaid people, doctors, surgeons, lawyers, and so on, and so on. So the metrics are completely off. You know, we need to unlearn and, and, and learn a new way. And I think this is a very good example. You know, what has highlighted this Ukrainian uh, uh, conflict is that, you know, you the collective West is not as strong. You know, the army, you know, the problem that Army should be for a purpose, not to make money, because ultimately it was about enriching the military industrial complex. And you see, it, it's it's a huge corruption, you know, uh, system. You know, when you have Austin, I mean, those guys they sit on on boards of a meter. You know, they they are supposed to serve, you know, you, uh, the, the the people in the U.S. and they're sitting on boards. They they're going back and forth, revolving door, on the boards of military industrial complex company. So their job is find ways to sell more weapons, not to defend the U.S. You know, it's very interesting you say that because it brings me back to that. You met you that that article you sent me from the Jamestown Foundation, Brian, because that so well illustrates the point. Because this attempt to calculate what the Russians are doing is not based on counting tangibles. <laughs> you don't you don't look at the tangibles. You don't look at the factories. You don't look at the machine tools of the factories or the workers of the factories. The amount of labour that exists in the factories. By the way, I've had. Since I did that thing on the takedown, I've had all kinds of people who actually visited some of these factories, which this article was talking about, and telling me, telling me, oh, you know, this person who's writing this thing, they haven't a clue what they're talking about. What you do is you count, you count prices, <laughs> but these prices that you're counting might be very. You know, artificial prices. They might they might be prices that you know arose in a particular period of time, and then you extrapolate from that and you make all kinds of assumptions. Isn't that exactly what we're doing with GDP? Our GDP calculations. Isn't that exactly we're doing what we're doing with everything? And I'm going to suggest that that's exactly the problem 
where why they got Ukraine, uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine so wrong. Because they're looking at things, not the tangible things, but at all of these other things which are based upon their own their own calculations and guesstimates in which are which are very heavily informed by their by their biases. So you look at what a shell cost in Russia in 2005 when hardly any shells were actually being produced in Russia. And you assume that it costs the same today when millions of shells are being produced. And it's as if you're not counting the shells. You're just looking and you're just looking at the number of sets of figures and you're just comparing figures. And, and what was funny about that was even with this very flawed methodology, they still indicated that Russia has, has been completely outproducing the U.S. since 2014, 2015. And, and when you look at it, well, they're almost, according to them, almost at one million shells a year. And you look at how flawed the methodology is. And then you hear, uh, say, the Russian government say, no, we're making millions of shells a year. It's very easy to believe that. And the, the Novoya Gazeta article about Russian tank production, they, they attempt to make it out as if uh, Rus Russian industry, oh, they can only make 850 new and modernized tanks. 850 is a very large number. It's more tanks than Ukraine's going to be getting. And they're all tanks that Russian crews are trained on, have been training on for years. Their, their technicians have years of experience maintaining them. And their logistical network has it solely exists to sustain them on the battlefield versus the hodgepodge that the West is sending Ukraine, where virtually every single, they have a category for main battle tank. That should be just a couple, maybe. They have uh, a multitude of tanks. They all require different spare parts, different kinds of fuel, different kinds of ammunition. That's, that's a separate logistic line for each one of these tanks. It, it's absolutely madness, it, the fundamentals of waging war, especially a modern war, uh, standardization is done for a very important reason. And uh, you see the Ukrainian military depending on almost the, the exact opposite of what conventional wisdom says you should be doing in a modern combat, a, a modern conflict. I hadn't appreciated until I started watching you, Brian that we have all these different types of tanks going on in in in, in NATO that, you know, uh, I, I mean, I'd assume, for example, that the Leopard 2, because it is a smoothbore gun, it's the same as the one that the Abrams uses, but apparently it's not. It's not exactly the same. I mean, you can probably fire the same shells, but they are slightly different. And then, of course, the British have a rifled gun, which is completely different from everybody else's. I mean, a year ago, I said a tank gun's a tank gun. I had no idea of all these differences completely different machines. The French have their Leclerc's, <laughs> the Americans have their Abrams, the Germans have their Leopards 2s, the British have their Challenger 2s. I mean, how has it happened? I mean, how have we got such a tremendous hodgepodge of production of practically everything, you know, different types of infantry fighting vehicles? I mean, th these armies, I, I can't believe that they were ever really configured for genuine war. That's what I can say about that. I mean, maybe the U.S. Army to some extent was, but these European armies, 
I mean, it hardly makes sense any longer to talk in that kind of a way. It goes back to what Angela was saying. These weapons were produced principally for profit. You have industrial groups in Britain, in France. They need to produce tanks, Germany more so. So, of course, we, instead of having, you know, a single standard of tanks, we all go for different types of tanks. And heavens knows, you know, uh, um, logistics, which is something I have some experience of. And you're absolutely right. You need you need uniformity in logistics. Well, all that goes out of the window. NATO's a business. Uh, NATO's a business, guys. Yeah. It's just one big company and it employs a bunch of people and you know, they got to they got to keep that business expanding and making money and get the government many different stuff. product lines different yeah. brands <laughs> new markets new markets got to go to 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 get finland and sweden and ukraine and georgia moldova it's a business yeah yeah, it's interesting how you know, how they do marketing. How they they've been using actually marketing in politics. You know, they've applied to everything. Actually, they want to turn you know us just into consumer. The same as we consume goods, we are going to consume politicians. But I I think I'd I'd like to mention one thing. I don't know what you thought about this, but I have the impression that what we're living now is a it's a bit similar to Yalta. You know when. At some point, the war was not over, but they were already preparing the world of tomorrow. Uh, I have the impression for, you know, with all those moves, we see so many moves. You have uh, Saudi Arabia joining SEO. We have BRICS. You have lots of interest. Money, this, which is the central central point, US dollar. You know, we see like de-dollarization happening and so on. And I have the impression that, you know, outside of collecting the collective West, they are already preparing for the world of tomorrow. And in reality, Ukraine, what is happening in Ukraine is a very small part. The big picture is happening outside. And sadly, the collective West, when you, you read, uh, you watch the media, uh, mainstream media, they don't see it happening. But the world, the new world has, has started. This new multipolar world has started. But nobody's talking about this in the collective West. I would actually disagree about that. They're starting to talk about it and they're becoming very nervous about it. You won't find it everywhere. Um, you won't find it. I mean, The Guardian doesn't talk about it, for example. I mean, they're, 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 they're on a completely different planet from everybody else about these things. But you are starting to see increasing numbers of commentaries uh, talking about this. And I mean, the rise of China has spooked them. Of that, no question at all. Because coming back to what you were saying before about controlling the, controlling people's perceptions, you lose a war, but you pretend you've won a war. You can do that if you're able to control the entire information space. And in order to control the entire information space, you need the power that goes with that. If there are other powers that are greater than you, that starts to become very, very difficult. And so that's made them much more nervous than I've ever seen them to be before. Also makes them, I have to say, more dangerous. We are starting to see in the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal to some extent, parts of the American media a little bit more. People are starting to worry that, you know, this is slipping out of our control. So what you do, you try and tighten up. You try and control even more. And you send more tanks to Ukraine because that's your only policy at the moment, even as you correctly said, the rest of the world moves on.
and and the fact that them sending more tanks to Ukraine, more more diff, you know, they're talking about all other kinds of weapon systems that they should send to Ukraine, but but they're missing this fundamental problem where you cannot just send a new weapon system into a country uh, for an army that has never used it and just expect them to be able to use it. Yeah. Quite clearly, they cannot. Uh, I also not to keep going back to that Asia Times. Uh, article, but I think it is, is a good reflection of how the, the collective West's leadership is looking at this. Uh, th th they're talking about uh, we should be giving them weapons to strike deep inside Russia. Uh, and at the same time, one of them admits that Russia could mobilize up to 1.7 million reservists. Do they not understand that by attacking deep into Russia and causing real damage and stirring up the, the entirety of the Russian population is going to uh, it'll be a gift to Moscow, enabling them to to mobilize even uh, huger uh, numbers of men when otherwise it would be very politically difficult for them to do so. so. They they continue to paint themselves into this corner further and further. Everything they do is working against them. They have no good ideas because the only good idea is to just stop, stop pursuing this unsustainable policy and reorganize and reorient yourself for a role among uh, the multipolar system rather than trying to impose yourself upon it. So it's not going to work. Mm. Mm. I, I just wanted, because we've just had a, a comment which I'd like to respond to, which is from somebody called Bulakov, which is not to be a negative Nelly, but shouldn't we acknowledge that long-term the collective West will be able to outproduce Russia, both in military production and a population base to recruit from. In theory, yes, they could do that. In practice, very, very difficult to do. And can I just say, there's been a very interesting article in the Financial Times on precisely this very, very point. And it talked about the immense difficulty of putting the West on a military mobilization track. And it pointed out that in order to do that, you'd have to change the entire structure of the Western economy and of Western society. And this article made the point that Western commitment to war, to maintaining the sort of sinews of war, has been in decline since the 1950s. So that in real terms, Reagan was already spending half of what Eisenhower was spending on military production. And of course, it's fallen an awful lot more since then. In order to change that round, in order to put everybody on a kind of mobilization track in the West, in order to assemble the kind of reserves, in order to put the industrial base on a different lines, that would be a titanic effort that would take decades. And that's just Russia. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you throw in China, which already has a bigger industrial base than the West already has, it's not going to happen. They, they can't get pension reform, uh, Alexander, no. in France. No, no. They're, they're not popular enough to, to pass pension reform and pension reform yeah. you need to be yeah. popular because you're going to lose a lot of political capital when you pass something yeah. like pension reform which in, yeah. in in a lot of countries is a real issue and has to be done russia and putin yeah. they got it done and putin took a hit to his popularity no doubt about it 
He took a big hit to his uh, to his popularity. They can't they can't get petrol reform in France. How are they? Can you imagine the French, the Greek, the Greek prime minister? I couldn't imagine him coming out and saying, you know, we're we're going to be on war footing, everybody. Forget about no. it. It's not going to happen. Well, if they want to mobilize uh, uh, European economies, uh, the, the collective West economies, don't don't they have to, at some point to declare war? I mean, I I, I don't see. Uh, I, I you know, at some point, if you do not declare war, you won't have the the popular support to sustain. You know, to to increase to turn into a war economy. At some point, you know, uh, unless unless you know there's a, an attack from uh, you know the, there's a false flag operation. You there's Article Five of NATO. But you, you know, they need in order to mobilize. The, the, uh, that's my opinion. I, I don't know what you think, uh, Alexander. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, it would have to be a war. The only way you could mobilize on that kind of scale, transform societies, transform economies. I mean, you could do it, but I mean, you you would need a war. But a war against whom? And a war in a world where there are nuclear weapons. I mean is an almost inconceivable situation, even for some of the people who are in charge today. I think that there would come a point where, um, you know, even with this deeply corrupted political class we have now, the brakes would come on in order to stop that. I'm going to make a point here. Again, I'm going back to the 1960s when... In some ways, the United States had a much bigger industrial base than everybody else in the world at that time. It's much better configured to war than it is in some respects today, far better configured. Um, it had much bigger military in terms of the personnel, proportion of the personnel, all those things. But even then, in the 1960s, the United States very quickly found in the late 1960s that it could not sustain the level of military production and the level of popular mobilization that it needed in order to prevail in Vietnam. It started to cause massive strains in the economic system, which fed through into the huge inflation of the 1970s. It created enormous amount of popular unrest in the United States. This isn't just the famous civil rights, uh, sorry, the peace protests that were also riots in American cities, all sorts of things, which partly, by the way, um, were connected to the call-up of young people from, you know, minority populations, as they were in those days called. Um, so if it didn't, it couldn't be done in the 1960s, it's not realistically possible today. And if you try to force remote societies to try to propel them into a kind of perpetual war with the Eurasian states, with Russia and China, where you'd have to go much further in terms of population control than up to now has proved possible. And I wonder whether it is it would be possible even then. So war, yes, you could try and do it, but really, I mean, that kind of thing, I, I don't think it's a realistic idea. And... And I always go back to General Wesley Clark and his seven nations in, in seven years discussion. And what he was basically explaining was that the, the U.S. was trying to 
reshaped the world before Russia reemerged and China rose. And that they're out of time. That that never came close to being completed. They are completely out of time. Russia has reemerged. China has risen. That what what options do they have left? And going back to uh, Alexander, what you were saying about restructuring the way the the Western economy works. These are these are arms companies that are obsessed with maximizing profits. And when you read articles about expanding artillery shell production, you can see how hesitant they are because they know that that is an investment that is going to cut into the bottom line and they don't wanna make it unless they're going to be paid yeah. up front for it. They understand that having expanded industrial production five, 10 years down the road and you're not producing that amount anymore, that cuts into your bottom line. They don't want to do it. So again, it's it's all backwards. The, the defense industry is supposed to answer to the state and serve the state. In reality, it is in the West, it is the other way around. And this is the outcome. Absolutely. It's important to understand that we have the economic system we have today in the West for a reason. Our societies have been shaped, have shaped the economic system in a particular way because it is beneficial to those who have power. Asking them to change the entire economic system in the kind of way that would be necessary to sustain the kind of production levels that we're talking about, military production levels, would mean fundamental changes in the economic system, which would ultimately not benefit the elites themselves. So they're not gonna go there. They're not going to do it. What else they're going to do is another question. And we must never forget that if we're talking about Western societies, Putting aside, you know, the elites and their dreams of world hegemony, there are options. And there's one obvious option, which is to seek peace. Peace is the option. We go back to what we were talking about at the beginning with Angelo. There is no threat from China. China isn't going to invade the United States. It's not going to conquer Europe. Russia has no interest in doing it, and it lacks the means to. So... It is not difficult to create a peace and a peace that is sustainable and a peace which is for everybody's benefit. The reason we are in this period of extreme tension isn't because some people want to perpetuate a period of artificial Western hegemony that's passed its sell-by date. And by doing that, they're introducing enormous tensions into the international system. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. That is spot on. I think also culturally, you mentioned uh, all society, Western societies. I can see Ukrainians fighting in trenches, Russians fighting in trenches. I, would, I could see like easily uh, Chinese just fighting, fighting, giving everything, everything. They love their country. Uh, I, I have big doubts of Europeans uh, uh, shifting from PlayStation to trenches warfare. You know, they, I, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's because it's not, you know, it's not, it's not tangible. You know, what, what is the experience, you know, what is the experience they have with war, this connection? You know, in Russia, is, uh, there's a, an, another history. There's a 27 million people that died during World War II. Uh, you know, this, this, it's very deep. It runs very deep. I, I don't see, I, you know, I, I don't see Westerners just, just fighting for, I mean, especially if they understand that this is not for their existential, for the West. You know, it's just about uh, giving up your hegemony. 
assume you know there's going to be an humiliation you know and it's going to be you know it's, it's going to be very tough just to realize we you know we are not exceptional what we've been brainwashed to you know there's another one out but if they give up their hegemony uh angela i completely agree with you but if giving up their hegemony is not about the the u.s people giving up their hegemony and alexander brings up this point all the time the u.s people if if the citizens of of the u.s if if the dollar is not the reserve currency the people of the u.s eventually will be better off because the government is going to to have to focus on domestic issues it's going to have to live within its means and it's going to probably most likely focus on the lives of the american people who loses the hegemony the ngos the universities that are funded with the money printing the think tanks in dc the neocons the projects for a new american century the the, the lincoln projects whatever whatever they're called the neoliberal globalist projects the regime changes the color revolutions the NATOs, the weapons purchases. For them, this now has become existential. This is now an existential. No, absolutely. I want you yeah. to point out it's very important that, you know, it's not, uh, we are talking about the elites. Uh, I, I think the really? first victim of this is people in the US. They're already victims of their own government because, you know, they are not empowered. You know, they are victims of their own own government which is not working for for them and and you know and uh, uh i think i think it's just uh, uh you know we we in the west have all we, we have to solve our own problems at home that's the, that's the problem why don't we start solving our problems at home this is why you know every single country should should work first at home once you deal with that then you can you, you can try to work with others but you know when you're like 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 france you see the the chaos why would you want to go fight a war in Ukraine when you have nothing? You just have nothing and you have lots of problems at home. Why, why are you mad? Are you mad? Haven't you learned about history? I mean, you know, just wake up. And that's the problem. You know, I want to point out, uh, uh, so I think uh, you might share uh, uh, similarities with me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not Russian. I'm not Chinese. I'm not necessarily pro-russian pro-chinese you know i i like lots of things but but first of all i love my country i feel bad for the path it is taking it's out of love you know a lot of people they they, they will call us uh, russian shields and so on no no it's not true i love so much my country but when i look at w- the direction it's taking it's suicidal it is suicidal at least we have a task to tell or own citizen or own people let let them know what you know just don't go into this direction we are not actually being attacked we are the one attacking look at our history you know we have 40 years after world war ii how many invasions we did illegal invasions you know ukraine what, what is happening in ukraine that's penis compared to what we did uh, and and we were talking about Westerners going into Ukraine and fighting. We we kind of got a little preview of that with the so-called International Legion, all the dysfunction and the fact that they ended up fighting each other more than they ever were fighting the Russians. In some cases, they weren't even fighting the Russians. They were just stealing money and stabbing each other in the back. And it, it's kind of a, a reflection of what has been done to Western society, because uh, as Angelo said, uh, one of the first victims of, of, you could call it U.S. imperialism, 
corp the corporations how they prey on the the planet they're they're also preying on the united states the, the public in the us as well and they all of this you know they do the divide and conquer uh, overseas they use the ned they do the exact same thing within the us uh, find all of the little fault lines to get people divided and distracted so they mm. can keep moving the agenda from one administration to the next to the next for decades mm. to to where we are right now yeah, you know, Angelo, Angelo, you you were spot on when you when you mentioned about how how societies are are educated or indoctrinated to 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 hate or to go to war to do all these things. What the neocons found in Ukraine, what they cultivated in Ukraine, was a population that was willing to get into the trenches and fight. That's what they created over the last eight, 15, 20 years, however long it took them to, to create this, this culture of, of a people willing to go to battle with the Russians, to, to be that battering ram against the Russians. And they found that. And now they're using that. But that's, that's what they have. They, they're not going to get the Greeks to do it. They're not going to get the Italians to do it. They're not going to get the French to do it. So they have to use the Ukrainians because this is these are the people that they've, they've they've been educating over so many years to hate the Russians. That's why they 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 poke around Eastern Europe as well. That's why they go on and on about Poland and Hungary and Romania because they're trying to create that same that same sense of hatred, that same feeling, that emotion of of hatred towards the Russians because they think to themselves, well. When the Ukrainian military is 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 demilitarized, as as is the Russians' goal, well, who do we have next? And they got a little taste of that mm. in Poland when Poland tried to put together that huge army. And and Brian, you've talked about this, and Alexander, you've talked about this. They tried to mobilize, and and it wasn't working because mm. there were there was a large part of the Polish population which was like, no, we're not, we're not going to go mm. fight in the trenches to go after the Russians for what? Why? And now you have uh, a Zelensky whose popularity has gone way down. I mean, maybe yeah. a year ago you could have gotten people to to go to to fight in Ukraine yeah. to fight for yeah. Zelensky, but now people people yeah. don't really like him at no. all. I mean, people despise him. Yeah. My feeling on all of this is that if NATO, if the U.S. could have fought the Russians in Ukraine, they would have already have been there. But they yeah. know they can't fight there. They can't win. People don't want them to go there. So now they're poking around. They're trying to find other societies, other cultures, other countries. Mm. Who can we get to go in there and fight? And they've got nothing. That's that's my mm. sense of it. I could be completely wrong, though, but I don't know what you guys think. I think they don't have any other options left other than what they have right now or what they're training in the UK yeah. or wherever else, Czech Republic, whatever. I, I agree, and I'm going to say something else. I mean, going back to that Asia Times article, you saw it. I mean, this is one of the reasons why they're so angry, because, I mean, they, they sense that this is their last throw. I mean, it was what uh, Brian was saying a couple of programs ago uh, on his channel, that this offensive is their last-ditch effort. I mean, beyond that, they're out of, they're out of cards to play. And I think that is absolutely correct. Uh, one thing I have to say about this, which is the other thing, which I do want, I wouldn't mind if Brian um, commented about this. One of the things that's been profoundly shocking to me over the course of this year is 
that American generals, and I really mean, you know, American military officers, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Defence Secretary, who is, after all, a former general, can just go forward and straightforwardly lie about something as important as war. I mean, I, I never believed, I would never have believed that that was possible. But I cannot believe any longer that, I mean, listening to Milis, his, his last comments, I can't believe any longer that he really believes most of what he's saying. And I think fundamentally, I think he knows, just as Alex said, that the game is almost up. They, they cannot they cannot physically, militarily, or economically win, but psychologically, they're incapable of losing. And uh, yeah. just just look at uh, the proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, mm-hmm. and then look at uh, the, the U.S. proxy war against the Syrian government and how that went. And I think there's a lot of similarities. I also think that the mm-hmm. state of the U.S. military occupation in eastern Syria, the very precarious situation that they are in right now, that that is a reflection of how weak the U.S. is militarily around the globe. They have to save certain capabilities for this war they're preparing for with China that they can't afford to commit to any kind of intervention in Ukraine or Syria. And now they have to pick between maintaining their occupation in Syria or the entire Middle East. Is that that is uh, right now? That's basically their keystone, holding everything up there. Give that up or give up their proxy war in Ukraine against Russia. And it may, may actually be possible that they can't do either. Uh, so, so I think it's important for people to understand that. And General Milley, he can't tell the truth. Uh, I mean, he's not telling the truth because he can't tell the truth. What, what is he going to say to the public? We're, we're out of weapons. We're done in the Middle East. We're probably, uh, we probably just sank the EU. And it really doesn't look good for fighting China either. I mean, he could say that it's true, but his yeah. politically, he couldn't get away with doing that. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's that, overstretching. Yeah, yeah so, so Eight hundred bases around the world for a, a country that there is four percent of the world's population. And you see, I think uh, if you really look at the uh, spending, even though the U.S. outspend the, the next 10 countries in, in military spending, if you are just in purchasing power parity, and if you look at all the corruption and uh, the overstretching, when you have 800 bases around the world, that costs a huge amount of money. Ultimately, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, the levels of uh, Chinese spending, defense spending, and the U.S. is probably the same. Just because there's no, 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 not the waste and, and, and corruption. So, so, you know, it's just, I, I think we're living in an anomaly. What, what we've lived in the last hundred years was just, you know, in history, an anomaly where you had, you know, by accident, you know, if you really look at what happened, World War II, everything was destroyed. They sold weapons to both sides, both sides, you know, they supported the, the Nazis at the beginning and then they shifted to, to a land and lease agreement with the USSR, and they came in when everything was over. And I have the impression sometimes that they they wish they could replicate that. If you really look at how did they set this up, you know, there's a land lease agreement started in World War II. You know, they did I think with uh, the the UK mm-hmm. with and then with the USSR. They are doing that now with the Ukraine, and they have a land lease agreement with Taiwan as well. Isn't it a hope 
maybe there's a hope we can replicate what we did. We are going to destroy Southeast Asia, fight China to the last Taiwanese, if not enough to the last Japanese and Koreans, they'll fight all war. Europe to the last Ukrainians, last Polish and the last Europeans. In the meantime, we are going to supply, we are going to finance, and we'll come out when everything will come in when everything is destroyed. This may be a hope, you know, it's a replica, replica of, of what, what they did in World War II, where they emerged with 50% of the world's economy, you know, they had 75% of gold reserve. Is there maybe a hope of, you know, maybe we can, we can, we, we pull that off on World War II, maybe there's, we can do it, you know, and, and, and I have sometimes also, I don't know what you, you think about this, but what we're having with Russia, isn't it an unfinished war of World War II? I mean, it's a bit of, you know, it's, a, it's a quite a stretch. But I have the impression that, you know, ultimately, you know, they, if they could, they would have actually even taken care of, of, of Russia, you know, because Russia was weakened, you know, there's so many deaths and so on. And, and, and you know, so I have the impression that they, it's an unfinished war, you know, they, and ultimately, you know, let's get rid of Russia and, and then we have the last peace. You know, and that's that's China. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Do you, do you guys want to wrap it up? We've been going for an hour and yep. forty yeah. minutes. Before we wrap <laughs> I, it up, I just have I do have two questions that I would just one to Brian and one to Angelo real quick, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, mm -hmm. Brian, I'm, I'm not sure who who asked these questions, but uh, they they stuck with me through the live stream. The first one to Brian is, how come Russia doesn't um, create another front in Ukraine from the Sumy area, from the north, moving down towards Kiev? I think right now at this point, they want to concentrate their, their manpower and their equipment. They want to concentrate it in such a way that they're, they're pulling in Ukrainian forces and destroying them as efficiently as possible. I think that's what we see in Bakhmut and now Evdivka. Uh, when you ex when you extend the line of contact, you, you know you're stretching everything out, and you're you're actually putting yourself at a a greater disadvantage. That was part of the reasoning behind getting Russian forces out from the the uh, the west bank of the Dnieper River in Kherson city to concentrate everything along. You know, make the line of contact as short as possible, which makes it easier to concentrate all the people have to realize it's, it's artillery it's tanks it's counter battery radar all of these systems are necessary along the entire line of contact the longer it is the more you need the less effective and and the less intense it is anywhere along the line of contact so if they did that then they would be dissipating the amount of force they could uh, bring to bear someplace like Bakhmut. all right thank you for that brian and angelo uh someone wants to know what do you think about the efforts from, um, oh, did we lose Angelo? Sometimes his internet goes in and out. Maybe he'll be back. Maybe he'll be back. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm okay question. with doing a, a, a couple yeah, of questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, back. let me, there was, a, there was another question, I believe, from, from Lada, who asked about elections and the effect on, can elections prevent the WEF, I believe? That was the question. Will elections be able to prevent the WEF from obtaining more power in groups like this in the West? The, 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 the World Economic Forum is just one of many institutions, yeah. organizations, and mechanisms used by what is essentially an oligarchy of 
giant corporate financier interests. Uh, these corporations create these think tanks. These think tanks and these forums are, are interlocked and they come to some sort of consensus because it is a large number of people involved in these corporations on the board of directors, the shareholders. And so they use these think tanks to come up with a consensus. They use lawyers to transform it into a bill. They use lobbyists to bring it to Washington and all across the EU to be signed off on. And then they use the media to sell it to the public. That is actually, at least from my perspective, that is how Western foreign policy is done essentially right. so that right. yeah elections and the the wef i mean it's a it's a whole system yeah. okay so let's do one one final question and we'll sign off to to angelo uh what do you what do you make of uh the trip from the spanish prime minister from ursula macron to china in order to pull china away from uh from russia what are your thoughts on these trips Oh, I, I think pulling China away, I, I, you know, this, this speculation on just to, to think that uh, maybe, maybe we could do something against uh, to pull China. That's just impossible, you know. Uh, China future is linked to what is happening with Russia. They are, uh, they are linked. They have, you know, they are linked. You know, it's, it's existential for both of them. They need each other. Uh, I think this is probably other. This, other purposes uh, to uh, for the visit, uh, but I doubt this is for shifting allegiance. Uh, China and, and, and Russia are in a de facto alliance, and you see what is happening with Britain, you know, with the with the, the, the structure, the, the de-dollarization. They have started a long time ago, uh, already. You know, eight, eight, nine years ago, they started working together because China knew all along that. What will come next with China? You know, uh, after Russia, they are going to go after uh, with, with China. So, so this is the whole picture. Uh, actually, I would say that China has been ready for the last fifty years. You know, um, I think Brian's early on. You 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 covered that uh, uh, on the, the the Pentagon Papers. You know, it was already very clear. They said it clearly that what was the plan? You know, ultimately, the last piece is going to be China. So China has been preparing slowly, slowly, bits by bits. They actually, I even sometimes have some doubts about, you know, this uh, in the 60s, antagonizing the USSR and China. Maybe China was actually playing smart. You know, you, you want to be on the side of the US, you need funding, you need transfer of technology. Well, let's fake it just to to be some kind of uh, ally of the u.s mm -hmm. against the ussr and at least and that's how they got the seat at the u.n you know it was a very smart move so we need to look at the long-term plans and so alliances sometimes it's uh it's very superficial the same as uh, turkey turkey is in nato but you know turkey de facto is not aligned with the collective west you know in 2016 there was a coup against Turkey. You know, Erdogan, he knows, he knows what's, what's going on. And sometimes, you know what they say? They say, be close to your friends, but be even closer to your enemies. So we need to be extremely careful. On appearances, we saw it, Saudi Arabia, they saw it coming. They saw it coming, you know, they signed, they signed security agreement in 2002 years ago with Russia. They saw it coming. You know, and the, you know, the US was not going to protect Saudi Arabia. 
I think we've lost Angie. Okay. Let's, can let's I, can I just, just, yeah. just, okay, just throw my, my brief yeah. comment about this? I mean, yeah, we're going to get all these European leaders trooping to Beijing to meet Xi Jinping to try I to get him to connection. Yes. Yes. To, to just say they're, they're going to try to wean him away from Russia. And Biden has been trying to set up a telephone call with Xi Jinping for five weeks. And, you know, they're trying to get him to talk to Zelensky. And, you know, where is this call with Zelensky? Uh, the Chinese will do what they always do. They're incredibly courteous people. They will receive all these Western visitors. They will listen to what they say and they'll say goodbye go back to Europe, you know, we'll be, we want to remain your friends, but of course the Chinese know very well where their interests are. They had this big summit meeting with the Russians, the meeting between uh, uh, Lula and Xi Jinping has been delayed, but apparently it is going to go ahead. There has been an announcement today of some big economic agreements involving Chinese currencies once more. That's where the real weight of Chinese policy is. Well said. Uh, Don't call us; we'll call you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's uh, let's end it there. Thank you very much to Brian Berletic of the New Atlas. Brian, I have your information in the description box down below, but I will also add it as a pinned comment. But what is the best uh, way for people to connect to you? I just search in YouTube, the new Atlas, and then in the video description of every video is all, all the other ways you can find and follow my work. And thank you so much for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much, Brian and Angelo. Thank you so much for joining us on this uh, live stream. Angelo, is, uh, is there any way for people to connect to you? Well, I, 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 I will answer for him. I will say that uh, <laughs> I, go, we, yeah. we, we do we do live uh, streams every Friday or almost every Friday. And in the video description of those videos on the, the live tab on YouTube, you can find all of Angelo's uh, Twitter, YouTube and everything else there. Usually what time are those videos, uh, Brian, on Friday? Uh, it's eight, eight, about 8 p.m. my time, which is, which is just like, just an hour more than than we started. Yeah, today. like like one, two o'clock London time around there. Yes, I, I okay, great. So. Great. Definitely watch those live streams. They're fantastic. They are on the new Atlas. It's Brian and Angelo, and they cover just about everything that has to do with geopolitics. A really, really great live stream. Alexander, Brian, any final thoughts before we sign out? Real quick, thank you to everyone on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, thedurand.locals.com. Thank you so very much to our amazing, awesome Great moderators, Alexander, Brian. Final words before we sign off for the day? Well, I'm just going to re repeat a point that I've just made. I mean, there is an option, there is an alternative, and that is to seek peace. <laughs> it's an obvious one. I mean, you know, we are not threatened by the Eurasians. The Eurasians have no reason to start a war against us. Why would they? They're getting richer. <laughs> they, they're, then they're getting stronger. They don't need to start a war with us. And we don't need to start a war with them. We can solve all our problems, regain our democracies, rebuild our republics in the case of the United States, do all of these things. We mustn't let a few people, the people that Alex was talking about, those elites that Alex was describing, 
influence us to such a degree that we choose a path of confrontation that's only going to end in disaster for us and indeed cause enormous further problems for the whole world and with enormous risks being taken on taken on board as well it's only existential if we make it so i i agree with alexander and i i will just add that the the leadership class of the west they have been running essentially a pyramid scheme since the end of world war ii they are fighting for that the survival of that because all of their wealth and influence is connected to it that's what they're actually fighting for uh there's no reason why the United States and Europe cannot have a, a sensible government and a sensible foreign policy that works together with the rest of the world, rather than insisting on keeping this pyramid scheme going and imposing themselves on the rest of the world. We, we saw nations like Germany building Nord Stream 2 with, with Russia and other European countries involved in that. We saw how that, that was on, on the way out from under the shadow of this, this entire corrupt and crumbling system. Uh, unfortunately, they got sucked back in, but I, I really do believe given time, time is on the side of multipolarism and with, with patience and persistence, it will prevail. Well said, well said. And uh, we will also be uh, doing a dedicated show, me and Alexander, to answer all of the questions that, uh, that you guys gave us during this live stream. To Brian Berletic and to Angelo, thank you very much for a fantastic live stream. Alexander, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day.